Welcome to the sermons of Steve Galloway, pastor of First Baptist Church, Macon, Mississippi. Let us join together and study God's Word and apply it to our hearts so that we may learn His truths and live faithful, obedient lives. May God bless our time together. All right, if you have your Bibles and like to follow along, we're in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Dealing with the church of Smyrna. Allow me to read this passage. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last, who was dead and who comes to life, says this, I know your tribulations and your poverty, but you are rich, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, so that you will be tested, and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. We look at this, and as I've shared before, when you see the angel of the church, uh, since John is instructed to write to the angel of the church, I don't think he's writing a letter and throwing it up in the air and hoping an angel catches it. He's writing to the minister of the church, the elder, the pastor of the church. And so when we hear that term angel, I truly believe that it is the minister of the church. So he's writing to them, but before we get into that, Let's kind of do a quick review of last week. We dealt with the first letter to the churches, and that was to the church in Ephesus. And Jesus commended them for their persistent labor. He commended them for uh, their perseverance, their endurance, and their spiritual discernment uh, when they were dealing with false teachers that came in their midst. But Jesus did have something against them. He said, you have left your first love. Now, we talked about that a good bit last week. What does that mean? I truly believe that they were doing good things, they were doing godly things, they were doing ministry of God through the church, however their hearts were not where they needed to be. They were kind of maybe going more through the motions, they knew what was right, and they did it for the right reasons, but they they had slacked off in having a right relationship with God. You know, it's so easy for us to do the same thing. We've been Christians for decades and we we just kind of take our Christianity, our relationship with God for granted. And we do good things and we're not trying to get the praise or anything like that. We're doing it for the right reasons. We want God to get the praise. But our intimate relationship with God has waned. I think that's really what he's saying is that your intimate relationship with me has grown cold. It's no longer where it needs to be. You've left that first intimate relationship and I related it last week, uh, kind of like that honeymoon period of a husband and wife. You, know, you just can't get enough of each other. You, you praise each other. You're doing everything for each other. Then over time, that, that excitement wanes a little bit. And so Jesus is you know, encouraging them uh, to restore the relationship that they once had and they should continue to have. As a reward, he promises eternal life in his presence. So now we come to the church in Smyrna. 
the word Smyrna or the name Smyrna actually means literally bitter. Uh, it's associated with the word that we see myrrh in the uh, New Testament, uh, where you know the the wise men brought frankincense and myrrh to Jesus. Myrrh was used as an ointment for burial, and it was a fragrant uh, ointment that was used. So, not sure exactly you know how you make that connotation. I grew up in Marietta, Georgia, the next city over, which actually was closer to us than downtown Marietta, was named Smyrna. And they, they, they didn't talk about anything bitter. As a matter of fact, they, they had chosen this name for them, the Jonquil City. And they did have some Jonquils planted around, but I don't remember there just being a, a, a large amount of Jonquils, but that, that was the name that they had chosen for their city. But this city of Smyrna is still in existence, but it goes by a different name now. It is known as Izmir, I-Z-M-I-R, and that would be located in modern-day Turkey, which is basically Asia Minor now. And if you take uh, the Isle of Patmos and kind of go up a little bit, you'll find Ephesus, then over and up, you'll find Smyrna, and then the other five just kind of make a circle. And they go pretty much in the same order that if you were delivering letters, these is that would be the... Uh, route that you would take to deliver these letters. And so Jesus identifies himself or describes himself uh, as the one who is speaking to the church in Smyrna. And he describes himself as the first and the last. He also says, who was dead and who has come to life. He says, I say this. Well, we look and this is not the first time in Revelation that we hear Jesus identified himself this way. You go back to Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, you see Jesus saying, When I saw him, or John was saying, When I saw him, I fell uh, at his feet like a dead man. And he, Jesus, placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last, and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive for, forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. So, we see that Jesus has already introduced himself as the first and last. But what does that mean? we got to go all the way back to, to one of the prophets, Isaiah, where God himself calls himself the first and the last. Isaiah 44, 6 says, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last. And there is no God besides me. So if God's saying, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no other God besides me, and Jesus is saying the exact same thing, I'm the first and the last, what does that mean? Jesus is God. No doubts about it. Jesus boldly proclaiming to be God. And then, uh, chapter 44, verse 6 in Isaiah. And so we look and we see that... uh, in his hands he created the heavens and the earth. We know that Jesus was part of uh, creation. When in Genesis says, And the Lord spoke, and everything was created. Then you get over to John chapter 1, and he says, And the word was made flesh, the spoken word, the word of God, the one who spoke things into creation. So Jesus was a part of that creation. Again, Jesus, God the Father, and God the Son are one. Then he says, and I, was the, I am the one who was dead and has come to life. 
Well, Jesus now speaks of his earthly ministry, not his heavenly deity part, but his earthly humanity. He says he came to earth, God sent him as his son to live a perfect life, but also to die for our sins. That's the whole purpose that Jesus came, is to die in our place as the ultimate perfect sacrifice for our sin. And so he was once dead. He died on the cross. And it says, and has come to life. We've talked about so many times, if Jesus had just died and was thrown into a tomb, and that was it, how would we know that his death was enough? But God proved it by raising him from the dead. By raising him from the dead proved that God had accepted his ultimate sacrifice on the cross to pay the penalty and the debt of our sin, and that he accepted that, and by bringing him back to life was proof positive that Jesus had fulfilled that ministry. And so now, uh, coming to life is depicted by his resurrection from the dead, hence the evidence of God accepting his sacrifice uh, for our behalf. So Jesus leaves absolutely no doubt that he is God and that he provides the gift of salvation and eternal life. So what does this mean to the church in Smyrna? Basically means he is able to keep his promises. Whatever Jesus says comes to fruition. It actually happens. Whatever Jesus commands, whatever Jesus says will take place. And so if he dies for our sins and we believe and trust in him, then we have salvation and eternal life because he is God. Now we look at uh, the first part of verse 9. And Jesus says, I know your tribulations and your poverty. Now, why are the people in Smyrna facing tribulation and poverty? Well, you got to understand where they are. They're living in the Roman Empire. The Romans, uh, they've been worshiping Roman gods for centuries. And that has somewhat waned by this time. And kind of in its place is the emperor cult worship. And it began by worshiping past emperors and, and deifying them as gods. And then some of the newer emperors said, well, if they were gods, then I'm a god too, so go ahead and start worshiping me while I'm alive. And so basically they started building temples to the emperors. And so the tribulation came when the Christians refused to worship the emperors as God. Now, the Jews, for whatever reason, were exempt from worshiping the emperors of God. Now, what happened is, kind of got to follow along, the Jewish people made up a huge portion of the Roman Empire. A lot of the people there were Jews. If you remember in Jerusalem, uh, at the time that Jesus was there and at the time of his crucifixion, the Romans were afraid of what the Jews might do. If they rose up in rebellion, they feared that. And so the Romans kind of made somewhat of a peace pact with the Jews and said, you worship your gods, we'll worship ours. If you keep the peace, if you don't rise up against us, we'll let you be. So you, you're kind of exempt. 
And so when, Christ, when Jesus died and rose again and the Christian faith bloomed, the Jews rejected Christ as their Messiah. They rejected Christians. At first, Rome thought that the Christians were just a part of the Jewish community, that they were Jews that you know, had just maybe a little bit different beliefs, but they still considered them to be of the Jewish faith. Then when the Jews basically kicked the Christians out of the synagogue, says, we reject Jesus as Messiah. If you want to follow him, then you will have to find another place to worship. And so when they kicked them out of the synagogue, the Romans basically said, okay, they're not Jews. And so since they're not Jews, they don't fall under that exemption. And so now Christians, like all other Romans, are commanded to worship the emperor. Now, how do they worship? Well, one time a year, they are to come to the temple of the emperor. They are to offer incense on the altar, and they are to vocally say that Caesar is Lord. And there will be officials standing there to witness their transaction of words and deeds. And once they did that, they would receive a certificate basically saying you are in good standings in the Roman as a Roman citizen. With that certificate, they were allowed to conduct business. Okay, as Christians, they refused to do that. They refused to offer incense to the emperor, and they refused to say that the emperor is Lord. So they didn't get the, the certificate. So what happened? No Roman citizen would do business with the Christians. So they were under tribulation, number one, because the Romans attacked them you know, in all sorts of ways, and the Jews attacked them because the Jews despised the Christians, and so they were always facing tribulation, but they were also in poverty. And the word poverty here actually translates more of what we would know as abject poverty, the worst of the worst, poverty. They, you've heard, I didn't have two nickels to rub together or something like that. Well, whatever it is, you know. In other words, pretty, pretty broke. And so the Christians basically had to defend, depend on each other. You know, if, if, you, if you got some extra corn or if you got some extra wheat, we'll pool our resources together and survive. And so they were facing abject poverty because the Roman citizens would not sell. They would not buy from them. They would not do any type of business for them with them. So if they were the best blacksmith in the city, didn't mean anything. Nobody was going to use them. So they were really struggling in the city of Smyrna. So that's kind of the background of why Jesus says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. Now notice one of the things he says, I know these things. Is there anything that Jesus doesn't know? He knows all. He sees all. He knows me. He doesn't only just see what I do or hear what I say. He knows my heart and he knows my thoughts. So Jesus knows all things. So this is both a good thing and a bad thing. It helps the people in Smyrna to realize we have a, a, a Savior who knows what we're going through. And so now we look and it says uh, after that, mine has in parentheses, but you are rich. Now what does that mean? Well, you can't be in abject poverty and be rich at the same time, can you? 
not financially anyway, not in a material way. So what was Jesus talking about? He's talking about their spiritual position uh, with the Lord. We see two different places in the New Testament that talk about this. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 9, 2 uh, Corinthians chapter 8 verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Now James chapter 2 verse 5 says this, Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? So two different passages there <coughs> excuse me, also show about this, this poorness, you know, physically poor, but spiritually rich. And so we look and we see that the richness of God that the Lord is talking about it's not physical, it's not financial, it's not material, it is spiritual. We have inherited all that Jesus has. We are co-heirs with Christ. We have inherited eternal life in heaven. So he is saying, but you are rich, and that's what you need to focus on. You may have nothing here on this earth, or very little, but this lifetime, even though it seems like it may be long, and we struggle to understand what eternal life is going to be like. This life is only but just a split second compared to what is yet to come. So we look and we see you know, God's promises again that don't focus on the material. Focus on the relationship that you have with him. And then the last part of verse 9 says, And the blasphemy by which they, uh, those who say that they are Jews and are not but are the synagogue of Satan. So they're facing blasphemy. Who by? The Jews. The Jewish people have rejected the Messiah. They now reject Christians as being Jews, but it's really the other way around. The Christians who were Jewish were the true Jews. Why? Because they were the ones who recognized the Messiah that had been promised to the Jews for centuries upon centuries. They were the true Jews who had accepted the Messiah. And Jesus is saying, those who blaspheme against you, who claim to be Jews, are not real Jews because they rejected me. If they were truly of the heart of Abraham, if they were truly of you know, the followers of Moses, then they would recognize me as the Messiah. So you know, you're being blasphemed by those who say they're Jews, but they're not. They're Jewish by birth, but not by faith. You are Jews by faith because you believe in me as Messiah. Jesus doesn't go and just say, well, they're not Jews. He says, they're actually part of the synagogue of Satan. Now, I don't know about y'all, but that's pretty harsh words. He's saying their eternity is doomed because of their rejection. They are blaspheming you because they are controlled by Satan instead of the Spirit of God. And so when we look at this, uh, Jesus is pretty much saying, listen, you're the ones following the right path. You're being punished for it by those who reject me, but I have rejected them. And so that's where we are. Now Jesus gives some commendations uh, of uh, condemnation of the Jews by saying that they're part of the synagogue of Satan. And he basically just shows their true alliance. Now picking up verse 10, 
he says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Now, Smyrna really does not have a bold statement of this I hold against you. This is somewhat implied as to the only thing that Jesus is saying, here's something you need to deal with. He says, do not fear. Why would Jesus say, do not fear? Because they're afraid. So he knows that they're fearful of the situation that they're in. He knows that they have already been uh, facing tribulation. They're already in abject poverty. And they have this sense that things are only going to get worse. And guess what? Jesus says, oh, by the way, things are about to get worse. Now, I don't know about y'all. I say, Jesus, I could have gone all day without hearing that. I could have gone the rest of my life without hearing that. But Jesus is honest with them. But he's also saying, listen, I'm with you. So don't be afraid. I've shared this uh, many times. Either the phrase, do not fear, fear not, uh, do not fear, do not be afraid, those types of statements. Uh, somebody's gone through the Bible and counted all those types of do not fear statements. And they claim there's 365 of them. One for every day of the year. So that's, that's kind of God saying, listen, I know your heart. I know when you face these tribulations, I know when you face these trying times, that it's natural for you to fear the outcome. But I'm saying, do not fear. Do not be afraid. Why? Because I'm with you no matter what comes. And then he begins to warn them about what is yet to come. He says, Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison. Boy, that, that's an uplifting message, isn't it? Well, more than likely, a lot of them have, had already been arrested because of their faith and had spent some time in prison. But it sounds like the persecution is going to be escalating. And it says some of you will uh, be put in prison. But notice the next words, so that you will be tested. In other words, are you going to... Say, you know, God, I can't handle prison, so I'm just going to recant my fate so I can get out and go back to my family, and, and I'll even go over to that temple and, and burn incense to the emperor and say he is Lord so I can do some business in this town. He's saying, no, you're going to be tested. This is a testing of your faith. Will you remain true to me even when things get worse? Folks, we cannot relate. We can read stories about the persecuted church and we can feel what they've gone through, but I doubt any of us have truly been persecuted for our faith. Not to any degree. Somebody may have laughed at us or you know, called us some kind of name or something like that, but true persecution, I doubt any of us have. Yeah. Like I said, I've, I've read... Every morning I read a, a devotion dealing with a persecuted church. And some of the tales are horrible. I mean, some of them definitely die a true martyr's death, man, a horrific death. Some of them face, you know, untold hardships. And, you know, you can read about it. You can sense the agonies that they go through. And some of them are faithful. Some are not. Some of them do cave. And some of them are miraculously rescued 
Some are not. Some face a martyr's death. And we're going to see that right here as well. Jesus says, some of you are about to uh, be put in, cast in prison so that you will be tested. Then he says, and you will be, you will have tribulation for 10 days. Now, what does that mean? You know, if I knew that I was going to get thrown in jail for 10 days, that's a whole lot different than 10 years. You know, I might say, well, I can tough out 10 days. I'm not sure that's what Jesus is saying. I think he's basically saying for a limited time. But what's the outcome? Be faithful until death. And I will give you a crown of life. So are they getting out in 10 days? Or are they going to be executed after 10 days? Really don't know. You could read it both ways. There's no way for us to truly know. We do know that many, many of the Christians during that time period died martyrs' deaths. They died because of their faith. And Jesus is saying, be faithful until death. You can look at the word death two different ways. Does this mean that you are about to die a martyr's death because of your faith? Or does that mean to be faithful throughout your years until death? Yes, both are more correct. God always wants us to be faithful every day of our lives. Whether it means that we're going to be faithful and face a martyr's death because of our faith, because of the persecution against us, or if it means being faithful every day of our lives and live for the Lord until we do die, natural death or for whatever reason. And so what we see here is that we are to be faithful no matter what. Whether we're in prison for 10 days and are executed, whether in prison for 10 days or a limited period of time and released to go back to serving out in the community. One of the things I have uh, picked up on multiple times in reading these devotions on the persecuted church, many of the pastors and godly, you know, godly men and women who are arrested they realize that God placed them in that prison as a minister. Where there was no minister for Christ in that prison, they became one. And by the time that they were released, there would be hundreds of prisoners who were now Christians simply because they had been arrested. As a matter of fact, several times the prisoner, the Christian prisoner, the, the warden would send them to another prison because they were winning too many people to Christ. Well, praise the Lord. Guess what? They went into another prison and started leading people to Christ. And after one had been in his third prison, they finally released and said, we don't want you to have that kind of influence on these people. And so we never know why God would allow us to be placed in prison for our faith. Could it be that it's our ministry? It's our grounds for ministry. Whatever it is, he wants to be found faithful, even until death. Then he kind of wraps things up and says, oh, before I get past that, and the reward for being faithful even to death is I will give you the crown of life. Now, we've talked about this before. When God gives us a crown, it is not, it's not the golden crown. It's not the 
you know, gemmed crown of a king is the victor's crown, like the athlete who wins uh, in the Olympics. And basically, it is the victor's crown of life. And he calls it the crown of life. And basically what he's saying is, you know, I am the one who gives you life physically, but I'm also the one who gives you eternal life. And what you have earned by being faithful even to death is the crown of eternal life. And I will gladly place that upon your head as you come into my heaven. So then verse 11 wraps it up, and pretty much like all the others, he uses this phrase, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Notice the word churches. Uh, These letters are probably going to be circular. The churches will probably share them with each other, and they will understand that we're all facing these types of tribulation and persecution, that we're not alone. But he's saying, are you listening? Do you have a spiritual ear to hear what I'm saying? I could read this letter and say, okay, anyone who has an ear, let him hear. Well, I just read it. All of us have ears, and we all heard it, right? But what does it mean to us? Has God spoken to us through this? Well, the thing that I think what he is saying is life is not easy. As a Christian, life can get very difficult, especially if you're in an area of a lot of non-Christians. If we moved our church into New England or the West Coast, you think we'd have as much freedom? You think people would accept us as easily? I can guarantee you they wouldn't. They they don't like conservative Christianity in those areas. And so, you know, what he's saying is those who face the hardest persecution, the toughest persecution, are the ones who are kind of rising above. And will there be different ways that we will be rewarded? Yes. The Bible's very clear about that, that we will receive crowns for our service to the Lord. Now, if we're like the uh, 24 elders at the end, when it's all over, they take their crowns and lay them at the Lord's feet. I have faith we'll probably do the same thing. It's not for our glory, but for his glory. That's why we live for him. So then he says, He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Well, if you're not a Christian, you're born once and you die twice. You're born physically, you die physically, then you die eternally. That's the second death. If you're a Christian, you're born twice and die once. You're born physically, you're born spiritually, but you only die physically. So there is no second death for us as Christians. So we are protected. We, those who overcome will not be hurt by the second death. We will not face an eternal death. And that's what Jesus is promising. So just kind of wrapping this up, you know, we have no guarantees that life will be easy. The direction that I feel that our country is going in is totally anti-God. We're moving away from Christianity. I shared with y'all, I think, from the pulpit Sunday that uh, I think the Pew uh, survey or Gallup, I can't remember which, did a survey. And basically, if they see the trend of people 
falling away from the church, falling away from Christianity, continuing at the rate that it is right now, by the year 2070, there will be fewer people who are proclaiming to be Christians than there are those who proclaim not to be Christian. In other words, we'll be in the minority. And that, again, is those who proclaim to be Christians. Well, you know, you can't find 50% of those on any Sunday. Very few of them are really devout Christians. You know, they're Christian because they were brought up in a Christian family. And when they were eight years old, they walked down an aisle and shook a pastor's hand and got wet in the baptistry. But they don't have a relationship with the Lord. Nothing serious. You know, they'll, they'll come to church on Christmas and uh, Easter and for a funeral or a wedding, and that's about it. So, where are we? How close are we to starting to be persecuted because the world around us no longer honors our beliefs or respects our beliefs? Well, there's no guarantee that life will be easy, void of persecution. But we are guaranteed that Jesus knows all that we face, everything that we face. And not only does he know it, but he is with us. He is our strength. He's our comfort. He's our guide. He's everything that we could possibly need and desire. He provides us strength and wisdom and guidance. And he grants us to be overcomers and will give us his crown of life. I don't know what else we could ask for. Actually, we didn't ask for that. It's his gift to us. It's our reward for being faithful. Let's close with prayer then. Lord, so thankful for your presence with us. And Lord, we are all unworthy of even your call to salvation. Lord, we're also unworthy to be your servants. Lord, only because you have placed your spirit in us and your power and your understanding of your word are we made able to do what you've called us to do. Lord, help us always live in a surrendered life so that what you've called us to do, we will be found faithful in doing. Lord, we always want you to receive the honor and the glory for what, what takes place. Help us, Lord, be found faithful. Lord, we may not know what persecution is like because we never truly faced it. But Lord, we know that there are millions around the world, even billions around the world, who persecution simply because of their faith in you. We pray for them. Pray for you to be their strength, to be their guide, their comfort. And Lord, we pray that whatever persecution we may face in our in our lives, that we too will be found faithful, that we will never give up the faith. We'll always stand firm. Lord, help us to see the opportunities, even our own community, to be your ministry, uh, be a part of your ministry, to, to reach out with your love and compassion. May we be found faithful, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Appreciate y'all being here today.